Well, I want to thank you all so much uh, for welcoming me, welcoming me so warmly. Uh, a few of you I've known for several years and have uh, been very good friends. Others of you I'm meeting for the first time and becoming fast friends. And uh, I've just been treated so graciously, and I really, I really genuinely appreciate it. And I know that uh, Harvest Bible Church appreciates your kindness as well uh, as, uh, as I'm away from them at the moment. But just uh, really want to uh, bring you this morning uh, a message to sort of button up what we've been working through this weekend. And uh, this, this conference has been about proclaiming the deity of Christ. And by God's grace, I, I hope that we've been able to do that, uh, myself and the other speakers that have been here And it is my great hope that you have been instructed and edified and convicted and hopefully encouraged. And if that has happened at all, then all glory belongs to Christ. However, I don't want to leave this topic just yet. Rather, I want to bring us back into the Scriptures this morning, uh, directing us uh, really to the natural outflow of this theology. It's very, it's very easy to learn doctrine and, and theological terms and buzzwords, and we did a lot of that this weekend, but it has to do something. It can't just sit up there and, and grow mold on it. We have to use it. And the question then is, why, why does theology exist? Why does Christology exist? Why do we learn about the Lord? Well, all of this we do that we might rightly worship Him. We do all of this for that purpose. All theology must lead to doxology. All theology is doxological. So it's one thing to study and learn and apprehend. It's quite another thing to heartfelt worship the Lord. And so how are we to worship? And what is the sum of our worship? Are we simply to sing songs to the Lord? Is that the, the end of it? We need to lift our hands and throw back our heads and weep and cry. Are we supposed to have a Jesus experience? Many people will claim that, that they just have to have some kind of an experience, and that is worship. Now, I would certainly contend, and especially being here this morning, that singing songs and praise to God is a, a vital element of our worship. So don't get me wrong about that. But in terms of the worship experience, if that is the end of it, the experiential component, then I think we're missing something. We're missing the mark. After all, Romans 12.1 says that our spiritual service of worship consists of more than songs and more than experiences. It consists of in presenting to the Lord our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. What does that mean? Well, it means that we offer up ourselves to God, our whole lives, not just a little bit of time on a Sunday morning. We offer instead our hearts and our minds and our bodies. We offer Him our marriages and our families, our jobs and our hobbies and our leisure time. We offer up our money and our abilities and our our time to serve. We offer Him our goals and our dreams and our ambitions. In fact, this is what the Apostle Paul tells the church to do in 1 Corinthians 7.35 when he encourages them to offer, he says, undistracted devotion to the Lord in all things. A devotion that is focused and deliberate and even costly. And so this morning I want to take all the learning of the last couple of days and focus it onto the person of Jesus Christ And I want to look at an an example of a person in Scripture 
who I believe embodied, at least on some level, a model of what it truly looks like to be devoted to Christ. And so turn in your copy of Scripture with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. I was teasing Pastor Steve that when I get to do messages like this, I get to choose my favorite texts. And so yesterday I said that Mark 4 was my favorite text in all of Scripture. Well, this morning, John 12 is my favorite text in all of Scripture. But what a joy it is to to be able to, uh, to bring you the Word of God just from a wonderful text this morning. The events of John chapter 12, they, they bring us in this narrative, in the gospel narrative, to within a week of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. We are approaching the week of Passover, uh, during which time the Lord Jesus will be killed on that Friday, and He will resurrect on Sunday. And much happens in this last week of his life, and in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they contain a large amount of narrative text as to the events which take place in this week, several chapters, in fact. John, however, includes relatively little information of the events of this week, no doubt due to the fact that the events of the week had already been attested to in the other Gospels. I don't think John felt the need to to give more than he had to, yet John does spend chapter 13 through chapter 17, recording the events of the last night before the Lord goes to the cross. So therefore, John 12 is the only chapter that records any of the events or teaching leading up to the crucifixion. But in the beginning of John chapter 12, it brings us to a dinner in the town of Bethany where we encounter one of the most astounding acts of devotion, I believe, recorded in all of the New Testament. Now, throughout the course of his ministry, Jesus was uh, constantly calling his followers to be devoted to him. In John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. It's clear Jesus wants followers, not just converts. It's great when you hear the gospel message and respond with joy and repentance and tears and and a constitution to follow the Lord, that's very good, and I praise the Lord when that happens. But what happens when you go home and you start living the next day? Do you still follow Him? What about a week later? What about a month later? What about 35 years later? What about on your deathbed? Again, Jesus wants followers, not simply converts. But further, in chapter 6, he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, here's the word, abides in me, and I in him. Similarly, in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me will bear much fruit. And then he says, but apart from me, you can do nothing. And so Jesus wants followers who abide in him who remain in Him, who metaphorically ingest Him. I was so thankful for Pastor Steve's call to action and dealing with a an heretical movement that says all you have to do is just a, a couple of steps and now you're abiding in Christ. That's not what Jesus says about abiding in Christ. No, it's your life. It's your whole life beginning with conversion and understanding and believing the gospel but it follows through for for your entire life until you see Him. And then you abide in Him forever. Far more than simply a couple of silly earthly things. Perhaps one of the most shocking statements, I believe, on just the cost of this, the cost of devotion, comes in Matthew chapter 10. I'm just going to read these verses to you. Matthew 10, 32-39, Jesus says, 
Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And then he says this, He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. In fact, statements like this are expressed all throughout the gospel narrative, and the point is clear. Jesus wants and expects and demands devoted followers. Well, we may nod our heads in agreement and say, Amen, preacher. Devoted followers, that's right. We read about it on the page, and it looks good, and we, Amen. But what does it look like to see this lived out? How do we do this? And again, I think this is just one view, one example of what we see. John chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made, they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. A large crowd of Jews then learned that he was there and they came not for for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. And so as we look through this passage this morning, I want to I see this unfolded really in four points or four movements here. And I want to just look, number one, very simply, at Mary's act of devotion. That's really what this message is ultimately about, is devotion to Christ. But I want to look at this together. Now, true to John's style... He introduces the event and he gives several bits of helpful information regarding the setting. And he's very specific with the time and the place. He notes that this is six days before Passover. Now, there has been some academic discussion about this. And you can read commentaries and there's all kinds of discussion. And many hold that while the Passover began on Friday, the festivities would have started on Thursday night after 6 p.m., Now, the question is whether or not six days before refers to Saturday or if it's actually Friday. But if you look at verse 12, if you read a little bit ahead, it says the next day is what we know to be Palm Sunday. And so 
That means, at least to my mind, that the events of the dinner likely occur on Saturday, with Jesus arriving in Bethany probably on Friday to avoid unnecessary travel on the Sabbath. But all four Gospels include a very similar event of this account of a a woman anointing Jesus with oil. We see this in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 7, and John chapter 12 right here in our text. It's interesting because in Luke's account, the details are different, and many scholars actually conclude that this was most likely a different woman at a different time in a different city because there's just too many things that are conflicting in terms of details. Now, again, there's some debate about that, and I'm not going to exercise all that here. But the other two accounts in Matthew and in Mark uh, are obviously the same event and provide us with some very helpful information that we can layer into understanding in John chapter 12. And so, again, look at verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. Now, even further, we know that there are many, or at least two towns named Bethany, and there are likely many, many men named Lazarus. It wasn't an uncommon name. But John is making sure that we, as the readers, understand this is the same family from the same town in chapter 11, as we may recall, Jesus raises Lazarus, his friend, from the dead after being dead for four days. And he interacts with Mary, and he interacts with Martha, and he says, I am the resurrection and the life, right? So we all remember that occurrence. This is the same people here. Jesus has come back now to see his friends, Lazarus and Martha and Mary. And we read in verse 2, they made him a supper there. Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. So this would have been a very joyous evening. Jesus would have been there with the disciples. Lazarus is alive and well. It must have been a joyful dinner for him, certainly. He's there with his sisters, Martha and Mary. It's a joyful occasion. John doesn't tell us this, but Matthew records that the dinner actually takes place in the house of Simon the leper. Now, of course, we know that this man, if He, Simon, still had leprosy. He probably would not be hosting a dinner. So I think we can adequately say this is Simon the ex-leper. And certainly, I'm, I'm sure of it, that Jesus is the one who healed him. And so now that he's been healed, he's also rejoicing, opens up his house and has a big, huge dinner, and the friends come. And so again, this is an exciting time. Martha is serving true to her character. She has a servant's heart. And so she's doing what she does best, and she is providing for all the people who are there. We read that Lazarus is there. He's reclining at the table with Jesus. As for their eating arrangements, they would have sat all together in sort of a U-shaped table, sitting a little bit lower to the ground. The dinner guests would have reclined on a small couch, and their heads would have been closer to the table, and their feet would have been positioned away from the table. So they all kind of would have been hunched together, all sort of facing each other, and their, their bodies, their feet, their feet are hanging out kind of toward the outside. And they would have leaned on the cushion with possibly one arm, and with the other arm they're feeding themselves. And they're all there sprawled out, and they're together around the table, and they're eating, and they're talking, and they're laughing, and they're singing for hours and hours. What a glorious time together of fellowship. And then we see Mary, verse 3. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary does something 
very unexpected and frankly offensive to some. She anoints Jesus with fragrant oil. How much oil does she anoint him with? Well, the ESV and the NASB translate the original word as pound. It's a pound. The Greek word is litra. It would have been a measurement equal to approximately 12 ounces or maybe about a pint. So not a tiny amount. It's a good amount of oil here. Now, for those of you who wear perfume or cologne, you know that just a drop or two will do the job, right? If you do much more than that, people don't want to come too close to you, right? But even a person who likes to bathe in the cologne and lathers it up, it really is only a few drops. It's not very much. But I want you to picture here dumping a pint of perfume on yourself or on someone else. Just fathom that for a second. The whole house would have smelt like it for weeks. This is not just a day thing. This is weeks and weeks it would have smelled like this. I remember when I was a kid, this is something that just kind of came to my mind. My, my father had, was cutting down a pine tree and he miscalculated and dropped the tree on our house and it split the house in half. And thankfully, all of us were fine. And then immediately, we just had to run up and start cutting the tree apart. But I'll never forget, my room smelled like pine for weeks and weeks and weeks. Just for your information. <laughs> I'm just remembering, you know, sense memory, right? The point is, is that she would have done this. The whole room would have just reeked of this smell. Their eyes would have been burning in their sockets. Their skin would have soaked it in. I mean, it would have just been permeating everything, which is partly why they're so angry. What are you doing? Why would you do that? We're having dinner. This is an insanely offensive amount of perfume. But that's how much she uses And John says that this perfume was very costly. It would have been. This word nard, we know that nard is most likely spike nard. It's harvested from an aromatic plant found in Nepal and China and India. And even to make just a very small amount of this oil, you have to harvest a large amount of the plant. So it's a laborious process and therefore very costly in that regard. But added to just the cost of producing it, Uh, You have to ship it from India all the way to Israel, and so you now have shipping costs and distribution and things like that. And we're not talking again about, you know, just a small 10 milliliter vial here. You're talking about 12 ounces, a very large container. And so this perfume would have been very, very valuable. How valuable? Verse 5 records that this could have been sold for 300 denarii, so up almost a year's wages. Take your annual salary and then go buy a vial of perfume with it. That's how much this is worth. Matthew's Gospel, we read here that the oil was kept in an alabaster flask and to get all of it out at once. Now, she doesn't just drip it out. She wants all of it out at once. And in order to do that, Mark tells us that she has to break the neck of the flask and decimate the beautiful container to get all the oil out. So not only is all the oil poured out, but the container itself is now destroyed as well. And so now Matthew and Mark record that Mary pours the oil on Jesus' head, something that was done for kings. But then John records that she pours it on his feet. So what's the deal? Was it the head or the feet? Well, I tend to believe it's actually both. I believe that she started by anointing his head and then moved down to his feet to finish off whatever was left. There's no inconsistency with that at all. 
So she anoints him. And what she does next, however, and this is, this is really what gets me. This is what's truly remarkable. After anointing the feet of Jesus, Mary wipes his feet with her hair. Now, I want you to think about that. Ladies, ladies, how many of you would be willing to use your hair as a towel? And not only that, but how many of you would use your hair as a towel to wipe off a man's dirty feet? I don't think very many of you are signing up to do that kind of ministry. Not a chance, right? We're not, we don't do that. But that's exactly what she does. She does this. Now, normally, attending to the feet of a guest was the job of a servant, a very lowly job. And remember, back in, in John chapter 1, verse 27, speaking of Jesus, John the Baptist, he himself even says he's not worthy to even untie the sandal of the Lord. He regarded serving Christ as so high, I can't even touch his shoes. I can't even touch his feet. So we kind of get an idea, not only of the lowliness of the task, but even just the magnanimity of serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, this is a lowly, humiliating task, attending to somebody's dirty feet. And they didn't have shoes like we do, where we could you know, put on socks and, and sort of have, have a, a shoe that protects our, the soles of our feet here. These are open-toed sandals, and they're walking through dusty roads, and they would have been disgusting, which is partly why I believe they would have had their body and their feet away from the table. So not only does Mary humble herself by attending to his feet, she anoints him with expensive perfume, probably one of the most valuable possessions that she owns, and then even further than that, she wipes his feet with her hair. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, why the hair? Mary, why would you wipe with your hair, my dear? Well, 1 Corinthians eleven fifteen calls a woman's hair her glory. Her glory, a symbol of her beauty and her femininity and her dignity. Right? A symbol of health and vitality. That is why it is so difficult when a woman goes through cancer treatments and has to shave her head and go bald why that's so difficult for her with a man you shave your head it's not really a big deal but with a woman it's very different why well because the lord designs it this way your hair is your glory and so it's very precious isn't it it's very tender in the ancient east women would have kept their hair up and to let it down would have been provocative even scandalous but here Mary risks her reputation. She commits a social faux pas here. She stoops down onto the floor, takes her long, beautiful hair, wipes off the feet of Jesus. And so she's lowering herself. She's sacrificing a symbol of her vitality and of her beauty and of her dignity, all in a humble service to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a beautiful gesture of submission and devotion, and reverence, not as a woman before a man, but as a believer before her God and Savior. Do you see, beloved, the magnitude of this? This is not a small gesture. This is huge. Needless to say, everyone in the room would have been aghast, including the disciples, 
And then one of them speaks up. Number two, Judas's accusation. Judas's accusation. Verses four and five. Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was attending, intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now, at this point, we're encountering Judas Iscariot for the first time in John's Gospel. He's made reference to back in chapter 6 as being a devil, but here he's actually named. The other Gospel writers note that all the disciples are actually angered by what Mary did, but it's Judas who is the one who speaks up. And he reasons this way. He says that the valuable perfume that she had been sort of hiding and storing, maybe it was an heirloom given to her by her family, but this valuable possession, this could have been sold, all this money, and given to the poor. And this is remarkable to me. Matthew 26, 8 records that one of the disciples, and I'm assuming it's probably Judas here, says this, Why this waste? Why dump out all that expensive perfume when it could have been used to feed the poor? That's bad stewardship after all. Certainly the disciples of Jesus did all they could to relieve the suffering of the the poor, right? That's important. And so Judas kind of makes his impassioned plea for those who are in need. Don't you? We could have helped people with this. But is that really his motive? Look at verse 6. Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Now we start to see Judas is a hypocrite. He doesn't care one iota about anything spiritual at this point. John reveals that if Mary, I believe, would have devoted or donated this money to this ministry... There's no way the money would have been used for the poor. Judas looks at the vial of perfume and he sees it. He goes, I could have have taken that for myself. Of course, he demonstrates his false piety by saying, oh, we could help poor people. No, you snake. You wanted that for yourself. John calls Judas a thief. And we learn here that Judas was also the group's treasurer. He was in charge of the money box. Now, I I personally, my belief is he probably lobbied for the job. The disciples trusted him. They had no reason not to up to that point. After all, Jesus is the one who lets him manage the finances. But only later would they come to realize that while Judas was the treasurer, he had been helping himself and pilfering what was in the money bag. Judas had been stealing from the mission. And so, It's not hard to see that Judas was only in this for personal gain, from what he could get from the ministry of Jesus. It's very utilitarian in the approach, isn't it? In other words, using Jesus to get ahead. That's prosperity gospel, isn't it? It's the most basic thing in the world. It's Judas Iscariot stealing from the money box and claiming it's spiritual. That's prosperity gospel. But in doing all this, Judas proves that he is a worthless servant. He's a hired hand who cares nothing for God and nothing about his kingdom. He's only in this for himself. This is pragmatism. How will Jesus help me? How will religion help me? How will church help me? 
See, it's not devotion at all. It's selfishness, greed, and destruction. And Paul warns Timothy, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. That is the biography of Judas Iscariot. And it is the biography of all who do not love Christ and only want him for what they can gain from him. How does Jesus respond? Number three, Jesus' answer. Now, in Matthew's gospel, it's interesting, he records that Jesus says this. He responds to Judas and he says, why trouble the woman? Why trouble her? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. He rebukes even in that. He sees Mary's action for what it is, selfless and devoted and humble and godly. And he calls her act of devotion a beautiful thing. Don't don't bother her. What are you doing? She's doing a beautiful, wonderful thing. You leave her alone. You don't bother her. You don't trouble her. But then John here picks up and records the next words, verses 7 and 8. Therefore, Jesus said, let her, let her alone. That's similar to what he says in Matthew. So that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Here now, Jesus assigns value to what Mary has done. He says, leave her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, at first glance, it might seem a little bit weird that he says it that way. It it almost, if you were just to kind of read it very quickly without really thinking about it, it almost looks like he's saying that Mary, let Mary keep the perfume for the day of the burial, but that doesn't make any textual or logical sense, so that's not what that means. Rather, however, I believe that she, he's surely referring to the fact, the, the act of her anointing him, she's keeping that act for the day of his burial. See, in ancient Israel, when someone died, their body was washed and then anointed with scented oils. This was, first of all, for honor and for dignity. Someone you love passes away and you're anointing their body as, as just a, a token of your love and and admiration for them because you love them, but it also serves a double purpose. It also serves a practical purpose of mitigating the smell of the person's body as they're wasting away. And then the body is then wrapped up and then buried. And once they're in the tomb, then the body is going to be packed and surrounded with spices and herbs again to further mitigate that. In fact, we see later on that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they do this for Jesus in John chapter 19. They take 100 pounds of spices and they pack his body with that. But what's interesting here is what Mary is doing, in essence, is she is performing the preparation of the body a week early. Now, there's no way for her to know that that's what she's doing. I don't think that she was cognizant of that fact at the time. But here, she has the opportunity to demonstrate love and devotion while Jesus is still here with her on earth. After all, we read in Luke chapter 10 that Mary had had sat at his feet to learn from him. She took that opportunity. And now, notice she's at his feet again. Not to learn from him, this time to serve him. To serve him. To perform an act of honorable service for the day of his burial. And yet, the juxtaposition, the chasm between the two responses here, in the midst of all this, 
the disciples are scolding her. Jesus says, let her have this. Let her cherish this moment. Don't ruin it for her. And then Jesus speaks of the accusation about not helping the poor. Look at verse 8 again. He says, for you will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now, this verse has been abused for centuries. But we have to see that Jesus is not, A, giving an excuse not to help the poor, and B, he's not dooming them to their fate. He's not saying, well, you'll always have the poor, so don't worry about it. That's not what he's saying at all. But the statement really here harkens back 1,500 years to the time when, when Moses tells Israel that they will never cease to be poor people in the land. That's from Deuteronomy 15.11. Again, it's not uncaring. It's not fatalistic. It's just a statement of fact. That all, all social attempts to eradicate poverty are destined to fail. Not because uh, we cease trying to, but because the Bible tells us that all of these kinds of problems, it's a systematic result of the curse of the fall. Because of the curse of the fall, people get stuck into drug use and they abuse their bodies and they sin against their family and they stop working. Or because of the curse of the fall, they become injured or sick and they can't work and they can't support themselves. Something catastrophic happens. There's a number of reasons why a person falls into poverty. Sometimes it's their fault, sometimes it's not. But all of this, all of this pain and heartache and suffering All this is a result of the fall. As long as sin exists in the world, there will always be trouble, pain, and poverty. There always will be. And so Jesus is not saying don't help the poor. That's part of the ministry of the church, isn't it? To alleviate the suffering of the poor, to care for widows and orphans, right? That's important to us. So Jesus is not saying don't do that. But rather what he's saying instead is this. There's something greater in that moment than ministering to felt needs what is it it is devotion to god himself now we know that devotion to god himself will manifest itself through how we love other people right you can't say james even says this in in james chapter 2 you can't say that you have faith and have no works right james says i'll show you my faith by what i do you can't say to, a, to somebody who's in pain and suffering, well, you know, I'll pray for you. Go in peace, be warmed and filled, and then leave them to suffer and to rot in their condition. If you can do something, Acts chapter 2, sell possessions and give to people who are poor, try to help them in their, their burden, then absolutely do that, right? We all understand this basic principle. But Jesus isn't talking about that specifically here. He's telling the disciples, I'm only going to be with you for one more week. You only have me for a little bit longer. So stay focused on me. Listen to what I'm saying. Pay attention. Learn from me. Abide in me, right? John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, all of this. Stay with me, beloved. I'm praying for you. I'm comforting you. I want to help you. I'm getting ready to die, but I'm getting ready to rise. Prepare your heart. Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be afraid, right? And Mark says, even added to all that, he says, listen, if you want to help the poor, you can help them anytime you want. So yes, help the poor. He's not rebuking them for saying they want to help the poor. Rather, he's correcting them because at that moment, They're missing the most important thing 
him. They're missing him. For Mary, nothing was too costly for Jesus. And I suspect she would have given anything. And in that moment, she really did give the best that she had. Why? Because Jesus was more valuable to her than anything in the world. He was more costly, more lovely. I mean, how, how do you put a price on him? And for her, there's nothing she wouldn't have given. No price she wouldn't have paid. There's no other place that she would have rather been at his, than at his feet, learning from him and serving him and loving him. There's no one else she wanted to be with than Jesus. What about you? Ask yourself the question. This is not just preacher talk. This isn't just application time in my sermon. I'm asking you the question. How valuable is Jesus Christ to you? How much does he mean to you? Is Jesus the most important person in your life? Is he the most valuable to you? And if your answer is yes, how do you show that? How do you demonstrate that? Do you give him your time? Do you give him your heart, your affections? Does your, does your affections belong to him? What about your money and your service and your possessions? Let me ask you this one. What about your thoughts? What do you spend your whole day thinking about? Now, of course, the Lord understands the rigors and responsibilities of life. But when you become focused on yourself and on your circumstances and your hobbies and whatever, wherever else your mind will wander, whatever you busy your time with, whatever you scroll through on social media, the time you waste that could be used for Christ, do you give Him your thoughts? Do you give Him your devotion as sitting at Jesus' feet the best part of your day? Let me ask you this question a different way. If you lost everything, like Job or like Naomi, if you lost everything but still had Jesus, would He be enough for you? Ask the question. Ask Him the question. Lord, you know me. You know, better than me. You know me better than I know me. Right? You know me, O Lord. My heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. I don't know my heart. You do. Lord, I love you, but you know if I'm telling the truth. Help me. And if the answer is no, ask yourself why. You know, we'll rearrange everything for hobbies. It's been said that I believe that church should be your excuse for missing everything else. But here's what we do. We plan everything else. I mourn the fact that in our culture today, when I was a kid, I'm almost old enough to say when I was young, you know, blah, blah, blah. But when I was younger, we didn't do things on Sundays. We just didn't. Nothing was open on Sunday. We just didn't. And now notice this. All the sports games are on Sunday mornings. All the practices, all the events, all the whatever. And there's always something competing. But how often do we set those things aside 
to consecrate time and energy and resources for the Lord. Why do we do it? Why, why do we set aside the most important things, the things of God, for other things? Well, I believe it's because we lack devotion. We're not really devoted to Christ. And not even just the things of Christ, to Christ Himself. We make excuses. And when we make excuses, we start to sound like Judas. Guard your hearts, beloved. Guard your heart. Ask yourself, do I follow Jesus because of what He can do for me? Or do I love Him because He is my Lord and my Savior? Because He's the sovereign Creator of heaven and earth and worthy, worthy, worthy of my devotion. These other things in life, they're not really worthy of our devotion. They're certainly not worthy of our worship. But Christ is. But here's the good news. Here's how I can unburden you today, okay? The good news is this. You can repent. You can confess. You can say, Lord, I've made an idol out of this thing. I've exalted this other thing in my life. This has my whole heart. Forgive me. I don't love you the way that I should. And so, Lord, if you have to kill this thing, kill it. Rip out the eye. Cut off the hand. You can repent, beloved. You can change course. You can devote yourself to God. It will take discipline. It will probably be painful. It'll take humility. It means setting aside your preferences and your pride and your honor to sit at His feet and humble yourself to unfurl your proverbial hair, to anoint Him with your love, to serve Him in the most humble way possible. I love, love servants in the church who do the most menial things, at least outwardly, and they never say a word, they never complain, you never see them. They just kind of hide in the back and they serve the Lord. And the church is built on such service, isn't it? it there's a blessing to standing in front of all of you. I, I love that. I'm thankful for that. But this is not the most important job. I believe it is preeminent in the leading of worship and training and teaching. Yes, of course. But all of us have a part to play in the body of Christ. You can't say to the hand or to the foot or the eye, I have no use for you, right? No, we're all important in the body of Christ. And all of us, no matter what, what station, what job, what service you provide, you can give God your devotion, your service, your love. You can sweep the floor to the glory of Christ. I mean that with all sincerity. You can raise your children. You know, I think a lot of times, stay-at-home moms, they get the short end of the stick culture they look down their nose there is no more selfless humble service than our moms provide to these children such a blessing but whatever you do beloved i'm just giving examples right now whatever you do whatever's in your mind and in your heart you can devote yourself to christ with joy sit at his feet and i promise you it will be well worth it see the disciples 
they were angry with Mary because she would take her most valuable possession and waste it. Waste it on Jesus. I can't fathom that thought. And yet, don't we say that to him sometimes? I'm not going to waste what I have on you. Mary doesn't see it that way. It's not a waste. She's telling the Lord, Lord, you are worth more than anything. And she shows it. And what does he say? She's done a beautiful thing. She's done a beautiful thing. I love it. Don't you? How does John conclude this whole account? Number four, lastly, the Sanhedrin's aggression. The large crowd of Jews then learned that he, Jesus, was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And so people, they hear about this and they hear about the miracles and everything, and they come to him, even in the midst of these beautiful and tender moments. And there's a backdrop of aggression that's brewing. And the religious leaders of Israel, the Sanhedrin, were seeking to kill Jesus, the man at the table with Jesus, Judas Iscariot, is the one who's going to betray him for money. In less than a week, it's all going to come to pass. Jesus would be arrested and tried and sentenced to die. But he would die willingly. Why? Why did he die willingly? To bear the burden of our sins. To suffer death as a substitute. To satisfy the wrath of God. For we read, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so I want to make my entreaty to you, if you're here and listening today and you don't know Jesus, if you don't know what I'm talking about, because you've never put your trust at all ever in Him, or maybe you've heard this message a thousand times, but for some reason there's something nagging at you today, stop fighting Him. Stop putting everything else in your life before him and put him first we're studying psalm 2 this morning kiss the sun pay homage devotion to the sun lest he become angry along the way and you perish that's a very real judgment isn't it honor him confess your sins to him ask him to save you ask him to save you and by his grace through christ he will he will Turn from your sins and trust in Christ and you will have everlasting life. You know, it's hard not to think that as the soldiers were nailing Jesus to the cross that day, that they would have been struck by the overwhelming smell of spike nard coming from his hair and his skin. Even as he died, the smell of Mary's devotion would have been in Jesus' nostrils. He would have smelled the costly oil. He would have smelled her love and devotion. He would have smelled her faith and her adoration. 
And it's hard not to think that as he died, that he would have been thinking about Mary and the disciples and you and me. Oh, Lord God, what a privilege it is to open your word and read of this example. And Mary is not a venerated saint. She's not perfect. She's not flawless. But she is our sister. And in this moment, she did demonstrate her devotion, her love for you. And Lord, you call this a beautiful thing. And we, we agree with you, Lord. We read this and I know that my heart is bursting in my chest. It's so beautiful. And yet, Lord, we're also struck with the realization that there are so many times in our life and in our day-to-day walk that we are not devoted to you, where we place other things in front of you as a stumbling block. We say, no, no, this is more important. We say, no, Lord, you're not worthy of this, my special time, my most devoted time. I don't want to waste this on you, Lord. In our shame and to our shame, Lord, we don't devote ourselves to you the way that we should. And I would ask, Lord, just as a servant, as a shepherd, in this moment before your people, that you would forgive us the times that we don't devote ourselves to you in the way that we should. When we place idols in front of you, in the place that you belong. Idolatry that ruins our hearts. It poisons us, Lord, against you. And Lord, I pray that you would convict us, each one of us in your own way, of that idolatry and the worldliness and the fleshliness that tears into us and rots our souls. You would convict us, Lord. And in that conviction, you would grant us repentance and grant us forgiveness. And what is forgiveness? The alleviation of that burden that you lift it off and say, I forgive you, Lord. First John 1 9, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Not because we are worthy, but because you're righteous and you're just and you love to forgive sins. So, Lord, would you alleviate that burden and forgive us and help us to walk in your ways. Help us to be steadfast in our devotion and to place everything in front and say, Lord, this belongs to you. Help us, Lord, to be devoted, to be steadfast, to be immovable. Help us to love you above all. So that one day when we see you, you will look at our life and say, yes, well done, good and faithful servant. You have done a beautiful thing for me. Let our works, O Lord, be beautiful in your sight. Let our works be pleasing to you. Not because they're salvific. No, we are justified by faith alone apart from works of the law but that our works, Lord, might be acts of devotion and worship of your holy name. We love you, O Lord Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.